Amen. If you will turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, we have a, a, a stack of Bibles in the back. Is there anyone that would like a Bible that yeah, you could turn along with? Yeah, some of the ushers, if you guys could grab some of those and pass those out. And uh, easiest way to find 1 Corinthians chapter 9 is to look in the front the same way that you would look for a chapter. It'll tell you what page to turn to, and that'll take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then you just go through the, through the book, and you'll find 1 Corinthians chapter 9 pretty easily. And that's where we're going to be this morning. And uh, we're going to look at just a, a, a simple passage. And, and we'll be in a couple other places, and you're more than welcome to turn along with us as we do that. Uh, you'll find it the same way. I'll mention the, I'll mention the verse and the, the, the book and the reference, and you can just go to the front of the Bible and find that uh, page number and, and then find the chapter from there. But we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. Did everybody get one that wants one? All right, very good, very good. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, if you're a guest uh, this morning or if you've not been here in some time, then the chances are pretty good that somebody invited you this morning and, uh, and, and you're here and it's friend day and now you're my friend too. And so uh, I've gotten to meet most of you. If I didn't get to meet you already, then make sure you come up and say hi at the end of the service. I, I want to make sure that I meet you and, and uh, get a chance to say hi before you run out. I'm glad you're here this morning. And, uh, of course, everything that we do in our church here is centered around the Word of God. Uh, church is not a social club. There's plenty of those out there. You can go anywhere and, and join a club somewhere if you want to do that. Church is, is, is a place where we come to be fed spiritually, and we need that, right? How many of you only ate one time this week? Probably not very many, right? But sometimes we get the idea that, oh, my spiritual life, I only need to be fed once, right? And we don't open the Bible, we don't spend any time in prayer, and, and that's the end of it. And, well, I get enough of what I need on Sunday, and that's good. And, and, and it's good to be here on Sunday. It's good to be here in church and all of that stuff. But the message is for everyone this morning. It's not just for the guests or for those who uh, have been here uh, for the first time or many times before. It's for everybody this morning. Uh, now, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, this is the, the book of 1 Corinthians was written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, if, I, if I were to ask you to, to list three characters in the Bible, Paul is probably one of the ones that you'd be able to list, right? Maybe David, maybe Daniel, maybe Joseph, maybe Moses, or some of the other ones, but Paul is a pretty familiar character to us. Um, Paul, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and, and I'm not going to take the time to read the entire passage. In fact, we're just going to look at the very end of 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and start in verse number 24. Paul says this, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Now, just outside the city of Corinth, so here's the book of Corinthians. It was written to the church at Corinth. Just outside of Corinth, on the Ithmian plain, they had, a, they had what's known as the Triennial Greek Games. Were held, And these games were very famous. And at the time that Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, they even overshadowed the Olympian games. The Corinthians were very proud of these games. Uh, it, was, it was really what you could consider probably the chief glory of their city. That's what put them on the map was these triennial Greek games. And Paul here in this passage is drawing on the importance of an athletic event for an illustration as to how we should live our lives in view of eternity. 
and how we should live our lives in the fact that, that one day this life is going to be over. Our race is going to be done, and how you ran that race is very important. And I, I don't know, I, I mean, I, I love sports. I, I, I played sports all the way growing up. I don't have time to spend as much time watching them and playing them as I used to. But I think Paul was actually kind of a sports nut, if you could call it that back in the day. He's, he's, he's mentioned several different times throughout his epistles and, and used sports analogies. So I don't know if Paul was athletic or not. I don't know what kind of sports he, he liked to watch or any of those other kind of things. But uh, maybe he just found something that they could relate to. But Paul uses this type of illustration to try to help us understand that we are in a spiritual race. And Paul is picturing this race here, and he uses a couple different words. And of course, uh, our English Bible is based off of the Greek text. And so some of the different words in Greek are different than the words that we have now. But the word that Paul uses here is stadion, which actually really denotes a stadium or a racetrack, people, people racing on, uh, on that track. And so the stadium that the Corinthians were familiar with, it was about an eighth of a mile long. In fact, uh, they say that, that if you were to go to the area where that is, you can still see traces of that racetrack still today that are still visible and, and have been excavated and things. But Paul says, run. He's urging these believers to get into the race, to try to win, to train to win. Uh, can I tell you this? Christianity is not a spectator sport. Uh, or if it is, we're not the spectators. Where the Bible says we're being watched by a great cloud of witnesses, those who have gone on before us. In Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, those who are saved and know Jesus Christ as their Savior and have died and gone to heaven are watching us and watching how we're performing in our race. But I think what Paul is trying to get across here, if you, if you want to win the prize at the end of the race, you have to get into the game. Sure, it's going to take hard work sometimes. Sure, it's going to take discipline and making yourself do some things that you really don't want to do, making, the, making your flesh uncomfortable for the sake of becoming better and stronger. Isn't that what athletes do, right? They don't, if they're training for the Olympics, they're not sitting around eating Twinkies and, and drinking Coke, right? Uh, those are, those, they might enjoy those things. They might want to do that, but for the sake of being the athlete that they need to be to compete at that high level... They set those things aside, and they, and they sacrifice some things to make it so that they can be the best athlete that they can be. Paul reminds them, and I think this is such an interesting point here, if you look back uh, in verse number 25, that these people, these people that are running in this race are doing it so they, contain a, uh, they could obtain a corruptible crown, something that's going to pass away. And back, back in those days, they didn't give away gold medals, which even gold is going to pass away at some point. But they got a wreath that was made out of parsley leaves. They did all of that training. They did all of that running. They, they did all of that sacrificing so they could get a wreath made out of something that was going to die within a couple weeks at the very most. Paul says they did it to, to obtain a corruptible crown. We're doing it to obtain an incorruptible crown, something that cannot and will not pass away. But if you want to win the spiritual prize, then you have to make spiritual sacrifices. And my message this morning to you is, is as simple as Paul's, get in the game. Get in the game. If you want to do something for God, if the church is to reach its full potential for God, if you are going to reach your full potential for God, then it's time to get into the game. And that's what I want to spend a couple, couple minutes talking to you about this morning. And the title of my message is very simply this, get in the game. Get in the game. Let's pray. And then we want to look at a couple things here this morning. Father, we love you. Again, we thank you so much for how good you are to us. Thank you for each person that you've brought out to the service this morning. 
it's no accident that you have us here. It's no accident that you have this message. I believe that you've uh, helped me to prepare for such a time as this. God, I pray that you would help us to receive the message that you've given to us this morning. I pray that you'd help our hearts to be open to make changes where changes need to be made. And God, I pray that you'd bless everything that's said and done here this morning. We'll thank you for all you do in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to understand this, first of all. If you're going to get in the game, the number one, you have to get on the team. You have to get on the team. The first and most important part of getting into the game is getting on a team, right? They have people that uh, jump, out into this, uh, jump out of the stands and run onto the field all the time. They don't say, oh, hey, you're pretty fast. Why don't you come join our team? They don't do that, do they? They tackle them, they, they handcuff them, and they drag them out of the stadium, right? That's usually, that's, that's usually the way that it happens unless somehow they escape. But you can't get into the game unless you get onto the team. And so... Going to church is important. I, I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't think that going to church was important. But there will be a lot of people that find themselves in hell one day who spent every single Sunday in church. There will be a lot of people who think that they've done a lot of great things for Jesus Christ who are going to find themselves standing before God and God's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. There's going to be a lot of people who, who think that they're religious and it, it's it's. Uh, it's, it's going to be a shock when they stand before God and find out you're not getting into heaven. Because you know what? The, the passport to heaven is not just to die. I know somebody dies and we say, well, he's in a better place. She's in a better place. They died. They're in heaven. Not, not necessarily. And the Bible has a lot to say about that, but it's like going to work and never getting paid. Or it's like, it's like being a second string water boy, right? You're there, but you're, you're really not on the team. The way Jesus described it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Now, if I were to ask you to say any verse in the Bible, probably John 3.16 is one of the ones that you could say. But in John chapter 3, Jesus was talking to Nicodemus. And we know John 3.16, but do you know the context of that passage? He was talking to Nicodemus when he, when he told him, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But a little bit before that, he told Nicodemus, ye must be born again. You must be born again. And maybe you're saying, what? How, born again? That's exactly what Nicodemus' response was. How can I be born again? I mean, I was born once. Am I supposed to jump back inside my mother's womb and then be born? And Jesus said, no. You're born the first time physically. The second time, you have to be born again. And that's a spiritual rebirth. You have to be born again into God's family. You were born into the physical family. You can't do anything about that. Even if you want to change it, you can't do anything about it. But you are in control of your destiny when it comes to your spiritual rebirth. You must be born again, Jesus says. And the way that that happens is, probably you've heard the term the gospel. Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, so that's possible. When you're born again, you become part of the body of Jesus Christ, the church. You need to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior in order to become a part of the family. You need to... to, to to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and repent of your sins in order to be in the game and to be on the team. You might be sitting there thinking, how do, how do I get born again? How can I be saved? I'm not going to take the time to turn to all the passages this morning, but I'm very glad you asked because the Bible's plan is so simple. Religion complicates how to get to heaven. Religion tries to add so many different things, and, and based on whatever different religion you happen to be talking about at the time, they have all kinds of different ways of how you can get to heaven. 
You know, the Bible says that Jesus was talking to Thomas and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. He didn't say but by me in baptism. He didn't say but by me in good works, but by me in all of these other things that all these religions tell you that you have to do. Because, you know, at the end of the day, how will you ever know that you've done enough? How will you ever know that you've done enough to get into heaven? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5 that you may know that you have eternal life. So if we can know that we have eternal life, then there's got to be a plan. There's got to be a way that we can know that. There's got to be more than just, well, I hope so, or, well, I might get to heaven when I die, or, man, I, you know, I've done a lot of things that I'm not proud of, but one of these days, I, I'm going to stand before God, and I think he's going to understand that I've got a good heart, and I think he's going to see all the other things that I tried to do right, and he's going to say, come on into heaven. But unfortunately, that's not the way that it works. That's not, at least not according to the Bible. And it's not, well, I, I hope, I, I know, I know. And I'm not saying this in a bragging way, but if I were to pass away right here, if I collapse on this stage and fall down dead, I know that my next breath would be in heaven. Not because I'm a good person, not because I'm a pastor, not because I go to church, but because I've done what the Bible says needs to be done in order to get to heaven. What is that? How do I get to heaven? Well, the Bible says very simply that every single one of us is a sinner. I don't think that's hard for anybody to admit. We've all done bad things in our lives, right? And maybe not bad things compared to what most people would consider bad. You've probably never murdered anybody or you wouldn't be sitting here this morning. Probably never robbed a bank unless you got away with it and Kevin's in the back. He's ready to arrest you if you admit that. So I don't think you want to do that either. But most of us have probably just done things as simple as disobeying our parents when we were growing up having a rebellious attitude, getting angry when we shouldn't have been angry, right? Having lust in our hearts or telling a lie or stealing or cheating or any number of things. Do you know that even one of those things keeps us from heaven? You might be the best person in the world and you only have one sin to your name, but one sin is too many to get into heaven. You might have three billion sins to your name. We're all in the same boat. Because if you can't get to heaven with one sin and you can't get to heaven with three billion sins, then it doesn't matter how many you have in between, you're not getting into heaven on your own. And it doesn't matter how many good works you do to try to outweigh those bad works or any of those other things. According to the Bible, the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So as hard as we try to get to heaven on our own, because we've sinned, we cannot get to heaven on our own. I'm glad the story doesn't end there because that would be a pretty depressing story, right? You're a sinner, you're going to hell when you die. You don't have a chance of going to heaven. That'd be pretty depressing. But you've no doubt heard the story of Jesus Christ coming and dying on the cross. We're, we're a couple weeks away from Easter. You've heard of Jesus Christ rising from the dead. Why is that significant? What's the point of Jesus Christ coming and doing that? Well, the reason is because we are sinners. And the Bible says in uh, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. Well, you don't expect to go to work and not get paid for it, do you? Now, you might do things here and there on a volunteer basis, but you can't live off of nothing, and so you're gonna, you have to go to work, you have to get paid, you've got you to gotta make a wage, right? You're all the, the uh, minimum wage talk now, right? How come nobody's saying, we ought to make the minimum wage free? You ought to be able to go to McDonald's and work and get paid nothing, right? Nobody says that because everybody wants a wage, and the same thing is true. I should be able to sin and still get into heaven. Well, how is that fair? How is that right? It's not justice by any stretch. That's not fair to anybody else. No, there's a payment for sin. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. 
One of these days we're going to die physically, but it's talking about a spiritual death. One of these days we are going to stand before God and we're either going to have our eternal destiny settled in heaven or we're going to have our eternal destiny settled in hell. There is no in-between. There's a lot of ideas out there about purgatory and things where you're going to go have your sins burned off and one of these days you're eventually going to be able to eventually get to heaven and people pay enough money for you and you're a good enough person and all of these other things. It might be miserable for a while, but one of these days you're going to get to heaven. That idea is not found in the Word of God. That's an idea that's been invented by religion. That's an idea that's been invented by man. There is no in-between. There is heaven and there is hell. That's our choices when we exit this life. And you're going either to one place or the other. And because of our sin, the Bible says we cannot get into heaven. The wages of sin is death. But, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What's the gift of God? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus Christ came to this earth willingly, lived as a baby, grew up as a human that was sinless, which is too much for us to comprehend. But he was crucified on a cross. And Jesus Christ gave his life to pay for our sins. Now, he didn't just die on the cross and say, all right, magic wand, the sins of all the world are forgiven. We still have a choice to make. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8 says, but God commendeth. God gave his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Can you imagine if somebody just walked up and shot your son in the head. He crumpled to the ground and he didn't even try to get away. They arrested him. And as that man is sitting on trial for the murder of your son, you start to feel a burning love for that person. And you start to feel compassion for them and you start to say, man, that poor guy is going to spend the rest of his life in jail or he's going to get put in the electric chair or something. Something's going to happen for him to have to pay for that murder. You know what? I'm going to take his place. I'm going to go, and whatever sentence the judge pronounces, I'm going to take the sentence for that man. Everybody in the courtroom, everybody that you know would say, you're crazy. That guy killed your son. Why would you, why would you offer to take his place? He deserves what's coming to him. Do you know that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us? Now let's make it even worse. That man whose place you decided to take cursed you, said that if he had the chance to do it again, he'd shoot your son again. So that if he could, he'd find the rest of your family and shoot all of them too. Oh, I don't think there's very many people in this room that would say, you know what, that's a guy that I would take the place of. But the Bible says Jesus Christ, while we were yet sinners, while we were still doing all of those things that he was dying on the cross for, gave his life for us. What a sacrifice. What a tremendous sacrifice that Jesus Christ was willing to, to send his son to die for my sins so that I could get to heaven. But how do you accept that gift? Well, the Bible is very simple about that as well. You have to realize that your own good works cannot save you. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8 and 9 makes that very clear. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I could get to heaven because of how good I was, then why did Jesus Christ have to die? If I could get to heaven because I stand before God someday and he says, why should I let you in? And I say, well, I'm a good person. And he says, you know what? You have done a lot of good things. Come on into heaven. And I'm walking through heaven with my chest puffed out and somebody says, how'd you get here? And I say, well, I'm a pretty good person. 
You know, I, I spent every Sunday in church. I gave money to the church. I helped all the, the old people on my street. I, I, I volunteered for all these different organizations. That's why I'm here. We are there because of you. Do you know what's going to happen when I stand before God someday? He's going to ask me why I should be led into heaven, and I'm going to hang my head and say, I don't deserve to be here. I'm a sinner. I've done things that I'm not proud of. I'm not, I've done things that I know have disappointed God. But Jesus Christ died for me, and I'm here because of him. I'm walking through heaven. I'm not puffing out my chest and saying, look at all the good things I've done. I'm hanging my head and saying, look what Jesus Christ did for me. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He says this in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13 says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Somebody who's drowning in the ocean and sees a, a, a rescue vessel that's coming doesn't say, let me hold my hands and beg you to come over here and save me, right? They don't say, well, tell me what I need to do for you to come rescue me. What does somebody that's drowning say? Hey, somebody help me. I'm drowning. Come save me, right? And that's exactly the cry of a sinner that Jesus Christ is looking for. He's not saying, oh, you're a good person. You're well-dressed. Let me save you. He's looking for the person who's saying, I am dying on my way to hell, and I need somebody to come rescue me and be my savior. That's who Jesus Christ is looking for. It's no magic prayer. There's no magic words. There's nothing that some kind of magic wand can wave over. There's nothing that I can do to try to get you to heaven. It's a relationship that you have between you and Jesus Christ. And that's why I say religion has nothing to do with getting to heaven. It doesn't matter how good of a person you are or how bad of a person you are. What matters is do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Have you been to the cross of Calvary and said, God, please forgive me for my sins. I deserve to die and go to hell, but Jesus Christ died on the cross to save me from my sins. Please forgive me and save me. Does that mean you're going to be perfect after that? No. I understood that. I grew up in church, and I understood that message at, at the age of five years old. And it's so simple that even a five-year-old can understand it. That's the amazing thing about the gospel. But I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I realized that even at a young age of five years old, that I had done all kinds of things that are sins against God. I've disobeyed. I've told lies. I did all of those things when I was growing up. But I realized that Jesus Christ died to pay for those, those sins, and I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I repented of my sins, and I asked him to forgive me for those sins. Have I sinned since I was five years old? Yes. Unfortunately, yes. But those sins are covered under the blood of Jesus Christ. Because when I stand before God and he looks at me, he's not going to see me with all the list of all my sins that I've ever committed. When I stand before Jesus Christ and he looks at me, he's going to see the name of Jesus Christ on a clean white sheet of paper with nothing to my name except Jesus Christ. That's how you get into heaven. That's the message of the gospel. That's why Jesus Christ came to die on the cross. And if I have to add anything else to Jesus Christ's death, then that means his death was not enough. His death was not enough. I have to have his death plus be good. I have to have his death 
plus be baptized. I have to have his death plus all of these other things. And those things don't have anything to do with it according to the word of God. Jesus Christ's death on the cross was enough. It's my responsibility to either accept Jesus Christ or reject him. There is no middle ground. Well, I might give him a try. There's no trying, Jesus Christ. It's not a 30-day money-back guarantee. You either accept Jesus Christ or you reject Jesus Christ. If you want to get in the game, number one, and we'll go quick from here, you have to get on the team. Number two, you've got to get on the field. Once you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's time to get involved. Perhaps you've been saved for just a short time. Maybe you've been saved for a while, but it's time to get out on the field. So many Christians uh, that, that are just willing to claim the name of Jesus Christ, willing to say that I'm a, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I know I'm on my way to heaven, I've, I've given my life to Him, and all those other things. But can you imagine, I, 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 I don't know if, I'm, if it's something that I should be excited to say or not, but I'm a fan of the Indianapolis Colts. I've been following them since Peyton Manning was there, and I've watched them through Andrew Luck, and now all the turmoil that they're going through is... It's not really anything proud to be an Indianapolis Colts fan now, but I am. Could you imagine what it would look like for a member of the Indianapolis Colts to go up and sit in the stands in their full gear and, and just, they come running out on the field and instead of going out to play the game, they run up in the stands and they sit there and they spend some time in the stands just watching the game? No, the whole point of being on the Indianapolis Colts team is to get out there and play the game, right? You have a quarterback who's, whose job is to do all of these other things on the field and he's sitting in the stands and Man, we need a quarterback. Does anybody know a quarterback? Well, yeah, there's one sitting right up there in the stands. Well, can somebody get him? No, he said he's not coming out. He just wants to watch the game today, right? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Christians belong on the field the same way that players belong on the field. We're not designed to be spectators. We're designed to be participators. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 11, Paul speaking to Timothy said, But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay a hold on eternal life, whereunto art thou also called, and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. We've been thrust into a war, and warriors belong on the battlefield. We can't take a passive approach to our faith. We have to be alert. We have to be determined. Getting involved in church after you're saved by using the spiritual gifts that God gave you is going to help your spiritual growth immensely. You know, there's so many Christians who say, well, I've, I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, but I just don't know. I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. I just feel like I'm in this rut. I'll tell you why. You need to get involved. You need to be at church. You need to get involved in, in the different ministries of the church. You start doing something for Jesus Christ, you're going to get excited about living for Jesus Christ at the same time. God designed us that way. Don't head for the grandstands when you enter the kingdom of God. Head for the playing field, right? Uh, somebody said a long time ago, uh, the church is a whole lot like an NFL football game. 22 people on the field in desperate need of rest and 70,000 people in the stands in desperate need of exercise. And that's the way that it is so many times in the church. There's five people that are, that are in desperate need of rest because they're doing all the work and you have 95 people in the same church who are in desperate need of exercise because they're just sitting there soaking everything in but they're not involved in the Lord's work. It's fun being saved. Nobody ever... Won a, uh, no, no one ever won a game from the sidelines. You got to get out on the court. You got to get out on the field. You got to get involved. That's where the excitement is. That's where the action is. You're never going to find a bored follower of Jesus Christ. Somebody who is really following Jesus Christ is not bored at all. Bored churchgoers? Yes, you'll find that. 
But you're not going to find a bored follower of Jesus Christ. Michael Jordan, the greatest of all time on the basketball court, said this, I play to win, and I will not let anything get in the way of me and my competitive enthusiasm to win. Michael Jordan led his team to six NBA championships. I was in grade school and high school when they were winning their championships. I followed every second of it. We, I grew up right outside of Chicago. We didn't have a TV, but we listened to every single basketball game. I, uh, I even remember back in the day, and this is going to date me a little bit too, but remember back in the day when you could take a blank cassette and you could push record and whatever was on the radio, you could record it to the tape, right? I recorded the starting lineups of the Chicago Bulls in 1998 when they won their sixth championship. I played that thing over and over and over and over again. But Michael Jordan... Believe it or not, even though he had all of those accolades to his name, he, he won the MVP of the finals every time that they made it to the finals. 2001, a panel of sports experts named him the greatest athlete of the 20th century. But do you know that he was cut from his high school basketball team because his coach said he wasn't good enough? Michael Jordan said, I am good enough, and I'm going to prove it. And he went out, and every single day he shot at least 300 baskets. And of course, shooting up height-wise helps. He did that in high school as well. But Michael Jordan went on to become the greatest player of all time. It takes discipline. It takes work. It's not easy. Perhaps that's why so few Christians are willing to make that commitment, make that attempt to be at church when the doors are open. Perhaps that's the reason why so few Christians are involved in the work of the ministries of the church. The world will hear the message of the gospel through the church, and the only way that the church is going to function is through those who are willing to jump in with both feet and get involved, get in the game, and become a part. If you want to get in the game, you have to get on the field. But a coach doesn't just put anyone that comes walking out onto the field on the field. He's looking for somebody that's in shape. We have to have the right, the right diet, feeding on the word of God, the right exercise. We have to, we have to be uh, exercising in prayer. We can't neglect to get together with the team for the training sessions. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, and let us consider one another to provoke into love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching. You know what he's saying? It's not time to stay out of church more. It's not time to, to get less involved in doing the work of Jesus Christ. It's time to get more involved. Jesus Christ's coming is at least one day closer today than it was yesterday. I don't know when he's coming back. I can't predict that. The Bible says that nobody knows when Jesus Christ is coming back. But I know this. If you look at the signs of the times, it's not going to be long before Jesus Christ comes back. We don't have a lot of time left on this earth to serve Jesus Christ. We don't have a lot of time left to do what we're going to do for the cause of Jesus Christ. But we're one day closer today than we were yesterday. And we're a week closer today than we were last week. Jesus Christ is coming back, and we don't know when that's going to be, but we have to make sure, we have to remember that the ultimate goal is not to just get out and play for the sake of playing. <clears throat> the ultimate goal is to become more like Jesus Christ in every single way. I don't mean this to sound disrespectful anyway, but he's our head coach, and there's no better coach to play for than the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one who has our best interests at heart. I saw a picture of a husband and wife standing together with tears in their eyes. It was an older white couple, and there was a younger black man standing in the picture with them, and the, the wife actually had her ear on the chest of that young man. 
And if you're just looking at that picture, it's kind of confusing trying to figure out what's going on. This older couple has tears in their eyes. But if you read the caption underneath the picture, what it turned out was that this young man had gotten a heart transplant from their son who had passed away. And the way that they could hear the heartbeat of their son was to listen to that heart beating in the chest of that young man that had received the transplant. And I saw that picture. I kind of read the little caption about that at the end, and I thought, you know what? Isn't that how it's supposed to be? If God puts his ear to your chest and Jesus is in there because you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, shouldn't the heartbeat of Christ be evident in your life? The heartbeat of Christ is for evangelism, for people to know the message of the gospel. If Christ's heart is beating in you, shouldn't your heart beat for the world to be saved? If Christ's heart is beating in you, shouldn't the, uh, shouldn't the heartbeat of Christ be for you to be in his church? Shouldn't the heartbeat of Christ be the heart beating inside you? What evidence does your life give that you have the same heartbeat as Jesus Christ? Hey, get on the team, but then get in the game. Number three, get in the zone. An athlete that's at the top of the game, uh, at the top of their game, is, is an athlete that eliminated all the distractions, right? If you were to go to their cupboards, I can guarantee you're not going to find Twinkies and Oreos. You're not going to go to the refrigerator and find it full of, of, of Coke, even Diet Coke, right? They've learned to train their minds to say no to the things that's going to keep them from being in the best shape possible for the game. Romans chapter 12, if, you, if you'll turn over there with me, we're, we're coming to a close here, but Romans chapter 12 and verse number one says this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And he says this in Romans chapter 12 and verse number 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That word renew, renewing your mind, and that verse comes from the Greek word that means to renovate, to tear something down in order to build something better in its place. What needs to come down in your life? Walls of fear? Walls of anger? Walls of resentment? Walls of unforgiveness or lust or greed or self-ambition or any number of things that we put up that are walls in our life. Tear those walls down. Build up new ones. Construct. Renew your mind in the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ and with the heart of a champion. I don't think that in opposing most Christians, the devil's game is to try to come in and, and, and plainly tell us not to do things for Jesus Christ. I think the devil knows that if he comes to most Christians and says, don't, don't do anything for Christ, most Christians are going to balk at that. But you know what I think the devil comes in and says? Let me distract you with something that's not important. Let me distract you with, with money. Let me distract you with things. Let me distract you with any kind of other things that can be put in your life that will keep you from being focused on winning the game for Jesus Christ. See, a team that's in a zone is unstoppable. Even if, that, even, if, even if on the day that they're playing that game, they're not the best team. A team that's in the zone cannot be beat. The, the sad thing is that the church as a whole could, could be a force to be reckoned with. Instead, we're barely making a ripple. See, a drip makes a ripple. But if you want to make a dent in the ocean, you have to have a powerful, large force running through it. The old Peanuts cartoon, Lucy is, comes up to Linus and, and uh, demands that Linus change the channels on the TV for her. Now, this is back in the day when you couldn't just lounge in the couch and push the buttons, right? Or talk to it. 
you had to get up and turn the channel. And so Lucy goes to Linus and she says, go change the channel on the TV for me. He said, what makes you think you can just walk right in here and take over? She said, these five fingers, individually, they're nothing. But when I curl them together into this single unit, they form a weapon that's terrible to behold. And Linus turns to her and he said, what channel do you want? And he, looked, he turned away, and as he walked away, he looked at his fingers and he said, why can't you guys get organized like that? What did God that his church could get organized into a powerful group of believers who knew where their power was coming from, who knew that they have power through Jesus Christ? What did God that we'd have a church full of people who have set aside the world's entertainment, who have set aside the world's mindset, the world's movies, the world's distractions, and unite behind the greatest message the world has ever known? That's the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Herm Edwards played and coached in the NFL, but he's now the head coach for Arizona State. When it came to his thoughts on teamwork, he said this, the players that play on this football team will play for the name on the side of the helmet and not the name on the back of the jersey. We remember who we're playing for. It's not us. It's the cause of Jesus Christ. Let me say this lastly, and I'm just going to mention this point, but number four, you've got to get on the team. You've got to get in the game. You've got to get in the zone. And lastly, you've got to get excited. You ever seen somebody that was embarrassed to root for their team? It doesn't matter if they're 0-10. They're going to root for their team, right? Browns fans. There's a lot of teams that are out there that are like that, right? Nothing to be excited about, but it's my team, and I'm going to root for them. I'm going to get excited about it. And, hey, that's the way that we ought to be when it comes to doing things for Jesus Christ. What, are we doing? what we're doing here is the most exciting thing in the world if you truly know Jesus Christ as your Savior. When Earl Hershiser was in his first season as a pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. This goes all the way back to 1984. He had a great talent, but he wasn't able to translate that into his pitching on the field. He didn't win very many games. He didn't pitch very well. And his manager at the time of, of, uh, in, in 1984 was Tommy Lasorda. And he called this young pitcher to his office, and he set him down. And Oral Hershiser later said it was the Sermon on the Mound. But Lasorda told Hershiser that he was capable of a whole lot better work than what he was producing and what he was doing, and that he owed it to the team to reach his potential. And Hershiser took that rebuke to heart. He went out and he approached the game with a new attitude, and just four years later, he went on to win the Cy Young Award and lead the Dodgers to a World Series championship. If Oral Hershiser had not taken that criticism well and he had not responded properly to his manager's rebuke, it's very doubtful that he would ever have ever achieved very much success or helped his team so much. And I don't want you to think that I'm yelling at you this morning, but I want you to understand that we have a much greater potential as a church than what we're reaching right now. Can we count on you to get in the game? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior? Because if you don't, you're not even on the team. You might be showing up. You might be showing up to the practices. You might be there when things are happening. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're not even on the team. There's no way that you're going to get into the game. Once you're on the team, it's time to get on the field. Time to get sweaty. Time to get your hands dirty. Warriors belong in the battlefield. Athletes belong in the game. And Christians belong in the race. Get in the zone, set aside the weights, renew your mind, 
Put aside the pleasures of this world. Be effective for God. And then get excited. We serve a risen Savior. We serve the King of kings. We serve the Lord of lords. What is there to not get excited about? Once you get in the game, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, I invite you this morning. We're going to have a time of invitation here in just a minute. And when we do, the piano is going to play. Nobody's going to be looking around. This is going to be between you and the Lord. I don't know your heart. I can't look inside and say, you've accepted Jesus Christ. Great. You're going to heaven. Or I say, oh, you haven't. You're not going to heaven. I don't know. There's one person that knows, and that's you. And it's between you and God, whether you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you're going to heaven or not. But if there's never been a moment when you've repented of your sins and asked Jesus Christ to come into your heart and to forgive you, I'm not being mean. I'm being your friend to tell you that you're not going to heaven when you die. If I knew you, if I was a doctor and I knew you had cancer and I had the cure, but I said, well, I don't want to hurt his feelings and make him feel like he's sick, I wouldn't be your friend by not telling you that. I'd be your worst enemy. The same is true here. If I don't tell you how you can go to heaven when you die, and I can't be called your friend, I, I could very easily be considered your worst enemy. I want every person in this room this morning to know for sure that they can go to heaven. You can come forward this morning, and I'll take a Bible. Or, or if you're a man, we'll get a man. If you're a lady, we'll get a lady to take a Bible and show you how you can know for sure that when you walk out of here this morning, it doesn't matter what happens, you know you're going to heaven. There's no greater assurance than that. No better way to get in the game than to get on the team. And from there, we have a lot of responsibility to make sure we're doing things for the cause of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed here this morning. The piano is going to play in just a minute, as I mentioned. I'd appreciate it if nobody's looking around because this is just between you and God. In the quiet of this moment, I want you to think about your eternal destiny. Do you know for sure that your sins are forgiven and that you're on your way to heaven? Won't you be honest with yourself this morning? I think I'm a good person. I, I think I'll get there. Ah, I, don't, I don't want to deal with it right now. Hey, I'm doing the funeral for a 24-year-old young man who probably thought that he had a lot of time left. And I don't know his standing before the Lord. I don't, I don't know. But I know this. Death came to him unexpectedly. And if death shows up at your door, catches you in a moment at a time when you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior there is no going back there is no second chance there is no redo there's no do over and I said earlier that there's no accident that God brought you to this service this morning perhaps it was for the very reason that you can accept Jesus Christ as your Savior in this service. Perhaps it's because God wanted to give you one more opportunity before it's eternally too late. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask you to stand at your seats with your heads bowed and your eyes closed after we pray. The piano is going to play and you'll have an opportunity to respond. Won't you do that this morning? Father, we love you. Again, we thank you for how good you are to us. 
But thank you for the opportunity that you've given to us to get things right that need to be gotten right. And God, I do pray that if there is even one person in here this morning, and in a crowd this size, I can't help but imagine that there's probably more than one person that does not know for sure that they've got it settled. I pray that they'd get that taken care of today before it's too late. And God, you know my heart. I'm not out here trying to scare people into making a decision. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want every single person in this room to have that this morning before they leave. I pray that you give them courage. I pray that you give them boldness to take that step. To come down to this old-fashioned altar. Let somebody take a Bible and show them how they can be saved. Well, thank you for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please stand at your seat for the heads bowed and eyes closed. As the piano plays, the invitation is open. You can come. If you need to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, won't you come forward and let somebody take a Bible and show you how to be saved? If you're a Christian already, you know you're saved, you know you're on your way to heaven, but you're just not living in a way that's showing that you're excited about being in the game for Jesus Christ, won't you come forward and get that taken care of this morning? Come on, as the piano plays, you come.